Welcome to the Think Podcast, the show that tackles impossible questions from a biblical perspective with your host, Joel Sedeckes. And now get ready to think. Welcome to the Think Podcast with Joel Sedeckes. I'm Joel Sedeckes, and this is the show that tackles impossible questions from a biblical perspective to help you explain, share, and defend the Christian message. My guest today is a repeat guest. We don't do too many repeat guests on the Think Podcast, but um, today my guest is Pastor Doug Wilson. And you know, we talk a lot about explaining, sharing, and defending the Christian message on this show from an individual perspective, but what should the church's approach be toward not just individuals, but families, neighborhoods, churches, communities, cities, cultures, nations, and even the world? This is what Pastor Doug Wilson discusses in his book, Rules for Reformers. And today he has graciously agreed to return to the Think Podcast to give us some insight on exactly how to get that approach right. So, Pastor Doug, welcome back to the Think Podcast. Good to be back with you. All right. So, you wrote this book, Rules for Reformers, a few years ago. And um, I just recently discovered it. I guess it would have been after No Quarter November, not this most recent one, but in, in 2018. Right. And uh, started reading it and... Um, gained a lot from it. And then I actually happened upon a copy of the book that inspired it, Saul Alinsky's Rules for Radicals um, at a, a free book table. Um, at a, actually, it was a training for crew, Campus Crusade that I was at. There was a free, that was offered as a free book and I snatched that up and I was able to kind of compare both. And um, maybe if we could just get started by asking this question. What do Christians need to understand about our mission that we're missing? Why, why all this talk about a reformation? Why should we want to see a reformation? Well, I would say because the most evangelical of, uh, or the most evangelistic of evangelicals act like the Great Commission was a command to go disciple all the individuals you can. But that's not the Great Commission. That's not, that's not what we were told to do. We were told to disciple the nations, ethnoi. We were told to disciple people groups. And we were to baptize them, and we were to teach them obedience. So consequently, it's not possible to be truly evangelistic unless you're thinking in terms of the corporate realities of evangelism, nations, cities, towns, tribes. So in thinking about everything you just said, nations, tongues, tribes, is that something that we are largely missing, would you say? Or, uh, you know, how would you rate our Western evangelical approach to all those, those different structures and realities? I think I would, I would rate it on a, a sort of a, different scale. I think most evangelicals are missing it, yes. Hmm. Some, a handful, are opposed to it, if it starts to happen. Hmm. Most evangelicals, let's say 80%, are making it happen. They're doing exactly what they ought to be doing, 
if we were in fact going for the nation or the empire or the tribe or the corporate reality, which is planting churches and doing personal evangelism. That's, that's step one in either scenario. The problem is when you get enough converts where it starts uh, registering with the civil authorities or the unbelieving civil authorities, and they start to push back, uh, there's a handful of evangelical Christians who've developed a uh, theological opposition to what Jesus told us actually to do. Uh, and they'll start th saying things like, well, his kingdom is not of this world, it's, et cetera. Well, it is too of this world. <laughs> well, now, so that, that's interesting. People would, would actually oppose it. Now, that objection that it's not of this world, that Jesus' kingdom is not of this world, I was going to bring that up later on, but maybe we could start out with that because I think that is a, an objection people are going to have right up front when we think about starting a revolution. Didn't Jesus himself say his kingdom was not of this world? So you're saying that it is. It sounds like, it sounds like there's a tension between what you're saying and what Jesus said. How do you... Yeah. How do you if there's a tension between what you're saying and what Jesus is saying, go with Jesus, right? Right. Um, so when Jesus says, my kingdom is out of this world, uh, I think that would be better rendered as, my kingdom is not from this world. My kingdom is not a worldly kingdom. Because when Jesus arrived preaching the kingdom, it's the kingdom of heaven. He's, he arrives preaching the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. So the basis or the, the where's the capital city, right? If we're talking about the kingdom of God, the capital city is at the right hand of the Father. The capital city is located in the heavens. But the kingdom of God is manifested here. It's not from here. It's manifested from here. So Jesus said, if my kingdom were from here, my followers would fight. Right? It would be a right-handed power sort of thing. Uh, Jesus says, uh, the Gentiles lorded over one another. You're not to be like that. Uh, we, we don't conquer. We don't make a difference here that way. But we do make a difference here because the kingdom is not from here. But the kingdom has arrived here. The kingdom, <laughs> that's, that's the whole message. The kingdom of God is at hand. You know, knock, knock, knock. So when Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world, he's not saying, keep the two separate, never, uh, I, you know, you better not bring my kingdom into this world. Uh, you, better, you better keep it separate. You better uh, keep those, there's the kingdom of the world and there's the kingdom of God and never the twain shall meet. That's not yeah, what he's saying. Yeah, we can't, we can't keep it separate because we're commanded, we're taught in the Lord's Prayer to pray, thy kingdom come. We're not told to pray, thy kingdom go. <laughs> right. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So our whole, our whole purpose for being here is to instantiate or see established the kingdom of God on earth. But it's not from earth. So when you're calling for a reformation, what exactly does that look like? And, you know, what do you have in mind? And uh, how is that different from the, the, the other popular R word that people like to use, which is revolution? Why reformation? Why not revolution? 
Well, revolutions invariably make things uh, worse. So revolutions are instigated by the various um, uh, injustices and crimes and and v displays of incompetence by the ruling authorities. Uh, I'm reminded of uh, uh, Ambrose Bierce's definition of a liberal, uh, a conservative rather. He said a conservative is someone who is enamored of the existing evils, as opposed to the liber liberal who wishes to replace them with others. So <laughs> <laughs> meet the new boss, same as the old boss. That's the problem with revolution. The new boss is always the same as the old boss. That's, um, the kingdom of God is reformation, which um, basically fast um, revolution is fast food change. And reformation is slow-cooked Texas barbecue. All right, you take you take your time. You don't you don't rush it. You let the yeast work through the loaf. You let the mustard seed grow slowly. So it it took hundreds of years for the churches that Paul planted to bring about the closure of the gladiatorial games. It took centuries, but when it happened, it happened. So. What does all this have to do with a guy named Saul Alinsky? And how did you, how, how did a Christian pastor come to end up writing a book inspired by anything by Saul Alinsky? Yeah, so Saul Alinsky was a um, radical leftist, atheist guy. Um, what, um, he was a community, quote unquote, community organizer in Chicago. He was the one. Uh, he was sort of an upstream mentor for Obama, who was also a community organizer in Chicago. And Hillary Clinton did her senior thesis on Saul Alinsky. He was um, he was a hard leftist who who inspired a lot of the people who uh, did a lot of the damage we're currently dealing with. So how do we go from Saul Alinsky, no friend of the gospel, no friend of the Bible. No, I've I've read his book. I mean, no friend of uh, of what you and I would would call for in terms of reformation. But how do we go from that to the book that you wrote, Rules for Reformers? What's the connection there? How could we learn anything from a guy like that? Uh, yeah. So Saul Alinsky had goals that were entire entirely at variance with the goals that we have. But if you read through his book, you see that he was really pretty shrewd, right? Yeah. Um, and there are things, even, even in this God-hating setting, he was a genius, he was, or he was really bright, really intelligent, and, and there were certain common grace elements in what he was saying. Like one of his rules is um, a good tactic is one your people enjoy. Right. Instead of instead of what many Christian leaders do is they want they want to bring in an eat your spinach reformation. Yeah. Yeah. That's not how it works. So you begin your book by laying out principles before you get into the rules. And some of these principles are objective, offensive, concentration, right. mobility, security. I mean, these the 
the, the principles you lay out, they sound very uh, militant, militaristic. And um, I guess my question would be, is this, uh, how is this the, the proper vocabulary for a movement that is by definition, you know, we're not taking up arms, we're not storming the Bastille. Uh, why the militaristic language uh, you know, what about the fruits of the spirit? Why objective, offensive, concentration? Why this right. vocabulary? Um, the, the, the simple answer is because the New Testament uses it all the time, right? So our weapon, Paul is careful to tell us that our weapons are not carnal, right? So we, we don't uh, take up the physical sword in order to advance the gospel that way. But we're to put, put on the full armor of God, Ephesians chapter 6, we're to put on the breastplate of righteousness, take up the sword of the Spirit. Um, the, the Bible describes the advance of the kingdom as in, as a, in militaristic terms. Um, we cannot pillage the, the strong man, Satan, until we bind him, right? And then in the Gospel of Luke, when Jesus talks about binding the strong man, he talks about stripping his armor, his panoply. So, uh, it's a it's the it's the way David took Goliath's sword. Now, on a spiritual, it's on a spiritual level. Uh, we have to understand that it's a that it's a metaphor, but it's a metaphor we ought to use. And then, what uh, to to go back to my use of the principles of war in this book? I'm um, giving more than a little bit of a hat tip to my father, who wrote a book back in the 1960s, called uh, Principles of War. Uh, and it was, he had learned, he'd gone to the Naval Academy and the Naval War College, and he had learned the principles of war in the U.S. Navy. Mobility, surprise, concentration, all those things. And he, he's the one that first thought, I can take these principles of war and apply them to spiritual warfare and see if the Bible says anything about each one of these principles. And lo, yeah. <laughs> Yes, it does. The, the Bible does say something about all of those principles. So not only do we, give the, do we get the metaphor from Scripture that ours is a spiritual conflict, a, a martial conflict. There's war in heaven, basically. Um, and, but we also have biblical, um, um, biblical criteria for evaluating each one of the principles of warfare. One of the principles is surprise. So there, there are the 10 principles, and I, I really want to get to the, the 21 rules, but the, the principle of surprise, that, I, I love that. Can you just unpack that for us? H how is surprise one of these principles we should be following? What does that look like in practical terms? Well, surprise means that, that when you, if you surprise the adversary, if you surprise the enemy, and he is the one surprised. That means that another way of saying this is that you're ready for what's happening, and he's not ready for what's happening. Okay? You want the enemy to be unprepared. You want to be prepared. You want the enemy to be unprepared. And the most uh, obvious example of this would be uh, if the rulers of this age had known what they were doing, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Right? So uh, who is inciting the mob? to arrange for the execution that would destroy Satan's kingdom. Well, Satan. 
right? Yeah. Satan was the one stirring people up to yell, crucify him, crucify him. And when he was crucified, three days passed, and then the devil was surprised. Yeah. Right? And that means he was unprepared. He had no countermeasures. He had nothing, he, he had nothing uh, to do. So in, in practical terms, when we're thinking about seeking a reformation, what's a practical way that we can use that element or that principle of surprise in advancing the mission of Christ? Okay, one of the, um, I said earlier that our weapons are not carnal. One of the ways we can surprise the adversary is acting like we really believe that. Okay. Okay. So, so one of the um, one of the things they'll do is they will haul out all their battery of weapons, uh, lies, slander, accusation. They'll say all kinds of terrible things about you. Okay. And then when they say when they say all these terrible things about you, if you go, "Ooh, ooh, I'm so angry, I could spit," um, that's just what a pagan would do, right? Yeah. If, if the non-believers call you names and slander you and accuse you and do all that, and you react just like a non-Christian adversary of theirs would act, they're not surprised. That's what they were expecting. Right. Okay. Uh, Jesus says when people despitefully use you, when they slander you, when they tell all kinds of lies, when they throw every dead cat they can find at you. And Jesus says in that day, rejoice and be exceedingly glad. Jesus says, go around the corner and dance a little jig. <laughs> right. <laughs> okay, go around the corner and say, you know, as James says, uh, count it all joy when you meet various trials. Roll up your shirt sleeves, rub your hands, and say, good, here's another one. Now, that throws the enemy into a state of consternation. They don't know what to do with that. That's not, that's surprise that you must know something they don't know which is true. You do. Wow. So you're, you're just refusing to play by their rules. You're, you're refusing even to let the things that bother them bother you. Right. Because, uh, because you're under orders. Jesus commanded us to do that. Yeah. I know you're a big CS Lewis fan and uh, I just recently read the great divorce uh -huh. and I, you know, I, after I finished it, I, just couldn't believe first of all it gave me some crazy dreams but uh but after i read it you know i was struck by the the way that the the folks the ghosts from hell as they come up and they're speaking with the spirits from heaven they're 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 laying out all these accusations and complaints and the spirits from heaven are just letting them roll right off their back with a smile on their face and it, it reminds me of what you're saying now it's when you've got this heavenly mindset you just aren't bothered by the, the, the darts of the world and, and the way that they accuse. Is that, is that similar? To, is that something like what you're talking about? Yeah, that is, that's exactly it. And it's as though one of the ghosts in the great divorce decided to punch one of the solid people. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it wouldn't do anything. It wouldn't work out too well. Their, their, their words, and their words are the same. It's ghosts yeah. speaking ghost words. Hmm. Man, so, you know, I know that you have faced no small share of 
of um, accusations yourself. And, you know, I've been inspired by sort of from a distance watching how you've dealt with some of these accusations. One of the words that I have seen thrown around about you and your ministry and your influence is this word empire. People talk about Doug Wilson's empire. And I, I wanted to get your thoughts. What do you think about that word? They, you know, they, they talk about the, well, I, I, I want to I let you speak to that, but have you heard this word? I don't know how much attention you pay to your, your criticism, and I hope it's not inappropriate for me to bring that up. But no, wh- not at all. What do, you, what do you think about that moniker? Uh, to me, it says you're doing something right, but what do you think of it? Well, I think I, I take it the same way. I think it means we're doing something right. I also mean, I also believe that it is just really funny. Um, <laughs> because when I look at some of the people who talk about Doug Wilson's empire, you know, it's like, it's like this former Soviet Union saying, here comes Lithuania. All <laughs> <You laughs> right. You know, um, good grief. You know, um, the, we, we have various ministries that are going on can, and they're related or sister ministries. There's, Canon Press, and there's Christ Church, and there's um, uh, New St. Andrews College, and that, that sort of thing. But I'll be frank with you, we're punching way above our weight class. And uh, basically, and this goes back to the use of principles. What enables a David to fight Goliath? What, what enables Jehoshaphat to put the choir in front of the army and have it have the impact that it does? Well, if you're thinking principially, then you're going to be thinking into, um, you're going to be able to uh, focus on principles, not methods. Right? Okay. If, if, if you, um, why was it, for example, that um, the United States had such a uh, rough time? Well, here's the, we're wrapping up maybe the 18 year war in Afghanistan. Yeah. I was okay. just thinking about that. Yeah. Uh, why? Why does the United States, with every kind of sophisticated weapon and weapon system known to man, why can we not handle Afghanistan? <laughs> right. What, what's going on? What, those guys are, you know, they're still back at the, you know, spear level, right? There's, they're, why, well, the answer is they're fighting principially and we're fighting with methods. Okay. What's, the dif- what's the difference there? So um, the, let me uh, go back to what we were earlier saying. Take, take something like surprise, okay? Okay. Um, occasionally, you can have a method and a principle overlap. So when we introduced the atomic bomb, for example, at the end of the Second World War, that was both the use of a new method and it was a total surprise. All right, so you have the method and the principle map on to um, each other. There's an intersection there. But if you have uh, two armies and one army is armed with rocks and the other army is armed with rifles and the army with rocks observes the principles of war and cuts off the other army's supply chain, for example, it doesn't matter that they have all these rifles right they can't you can't eat your rifle right 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 and you just and the guys with rocks cut off your supply chain so that's uh that's the principle of communication the supply chain is so 
the lesser, um, well, less well-equipped army observes the principle, okay, and the other army doesn't, even though they've got superior methods, okay, the, okay. the advanced weaponry. Yeah. So, so um, in terms of when we talk about the different ministries that, that you've started, participated in, been leading, um, which, which is the one right now? I would say off the record, but this is very on the record. But which, which is the one right now that you see as being most strategic to what your goal is, what you believe that the Lord is trying to, is working to accomplish through you there in Moscow, Idaho? What, which of the ministries can okay, impress? I, yeah, I'd have to answer that sort of on two different levels. So if, um, if someone said, um, bad news, Doug, you're going to have to give up, you know, you're wearing all these different hats you're going to have to give up all of them but one. Mm -hmm. Okay. What hat would I not give up? That would be preaching. Okay. Um, I believe that that's the central thing I'm called to, and I think that that's the central engine of Reformation. Yeah, is amen. the preaching of the Word of God. Okay. So that's, that, is, uh, that has to do with all the things that are going on and... If you change the question up and say, okay, given that we want um, preaching of the Word of God to continue, in the what is the lay of the land? What's the most important thing that you've done that is having a national impact right now? That sort of thing. I would say New St. Andrews College. Really? Yeah. So New St. Andrews is is a key institution. Now, I don't think it would be. I don't think New St. Andrews would last very long if it weren't for the local preaching of the word here. Right. So that's why I would okay. keep, I'd want to keep the preaching. But uh, New St. Andrews has, is pos well positioned to speak into uh, an almost total collapse of Christian higher ed uh, in North America. Um, mm. And that's because we don't take federal money. We don't, we're independent. We can just continue doing what we're what we're doing, we're not beholden to anybody, and we're we're wanting to teach and train leaders to sh to lead and shape culture, um, and not we don't want to be an echo, uh, sort of a slightly cleaned up echo of what whatever the world's doing. Is New St. Andrews accredited? Yes. Uh huh. Is there any concern about the future with that that they might try to take away your accreditation, or depending on how things go with the culture? Yeah, these, are, these things are always a concern. The accreditation agency that we currently have accreditation with is a Christian one, and, uh, and it's a national one. It's not one of the regionals. It's a Christian one, which, and we, which we want to keep. We also want, we're also looking at uh, getting a second accreditation. So bas basically, we want to keep as many options open as we can. Okay. Um, and yeah, but it's always a it's always a threat. They could say no, no institution that um, denies LGBTQ people their rights can be accredited in North America. Well, then we stop. Uh, then then we're not accredited, and we'll continue to teach. Okay. Um, I, I would imagine. And, and what is what is your official role with New St. Andrews? So I teach electives. I'm 
I teach in the MFA program, in the graduate program. We have a master's of fine arts program. I teach there, and I also teach a couple of electives every year, and I serve on the board. Okay. Yeah, so I would imagine in playing those roles, you would definitely have to have your thumb on the pulse of what's going on. And I mean, I know you do anyway with your other work, but. Right. Uh, yeah, uh, but I, when our president, when our president travels and meets with other college presidents, one of the things he hears more often than anything else is sort of envious comments from other college presidents wishing that they were situated the way we are. Really? Because they've got, they've taken the, you pay, you take the King's coin, you become the King's man. And they've they're over, sort of over a barrel when it comes to student uh, student loans and all of those things. Okay, okay. So um, maybe that's enough about the uh, the Doug Wilson Empire for now. Um, yes. uh, although I could probably pick your brain on that all day, but I do want to talk about these rules if we could. In total, you have twenty one rules for reformers, which, as you point out, is way better than Alinsky's paltry 13. Yes. Great line. Way uh, better. Yeah. Um, I'd love to walk through these. Um, I don't know if we have time to get to all of them, but there were a few that really stood out to me, a few that really stood out to me, and I thought maybe we could sort of unpack them a little bit. And especially, so I'm, I'm speaking to my list. I mean, I'm speaking on behalf of my listeners now, but also just practically speaking, I. Personally, with our ministry, the Think Institute just started a discipleship cohort where the end goal of the cohort, we're providing worldview evangelism and apologetics training. The end view of it is to launch out guys from this cohort, whoever the Holy Spirit may call, to start new evangelistic discussion groups in strategic locations around the city. Uh, in order to set up gospel outposts around the city of Chicago with the ultimate goal of winning the city of Chicago for Christ in the long term. So we're trying to create multiplying gospel movements. Um, so I'm, this is a selfish thing for me as well. I, I, um, I'm hoping to continue to pick your brain about this, um, but maybe we could talk about the, the rule number four, exhibit courage on the individual and family level. How important is courage? To, to starting a reformation. Um, yeah, uh, it turns out when you start shooting at the devil, he knows how to shoot back. <laughs> really? <laughs> yes, and and he does so, and so consequently, um, people people who want a low cost or no cost reformation want something that has never happened and never will happen. So, wouldn't it be nice if everything were better? Is not is not a rallying cry, right? And uh, the the reformation that is desperately needed now is not going to be accompanied to this sound of polite golf applause. <laughs> <laughs> and, and so they're going to fight back. They're going to punch back. They're going to they're going to come after you, and they're going to come after you with lies. They're going to come after you with slander. They're going to come after you with threats. They're going to take your house away. They're going to you know. Um, they're going to do everything they can think of to do and whatever they can get away with. And so consequently, a Christian pulpit is a place, given the, given the disarray of our culture, the Christian pul pulpit is a place that it should take courage to occupy. 
when you say the disarray of our culture, can we make that explicit? How is our culture in disarray today? And is this is this unprecedented, or is this just the way things have always been? As you know, you've been in ministry for decades. Is is today unprecedented, or well, is is it more of the same? Today is unprecedented with regard to my lifetime, right? I I was uh, I grew up in normal times, right? Um, and by normal, I mean common grace normal, mm-hmm. right? Uh, when I was a little kid, I didn't I don't I don't. Uh, think any of my friends came from broken homes. You know, secular kids up and down the street, it, it was intact families. But I, I grew up in, Ameri- in, an, in an America where divorce was unusual. And I don't think I ever encountered it when I was a little, when I was a little kid. So it was common grace normal. But uh, if you look at empires and civilizations and societies, they have a lifespan you um uh, around 200 to 250 years hmm. and the the period of uh, pandemic the demented period we're in now ha- uh happens at the at the uh, it even has a french name fin de siècle the end of the century so we're living in fin de siècle times where things are falling apart the wheels are coming off it's a period of decadence and great civilizations routinely have gone through this period of decadence. So it's nothing unusual. There's nothing new under the sun. The kind of decadence we're experiencing has been experienced many times before, just not in every generation. Okay, so in light of that, how do we follow rule number 14, which is all about having a sense of humor, cultivate a robust sense of humor? Because what you're describing is it sounds pretty dire if we're talking about the end of the civilization how does a how does a sense of humor factor into that some some people are going to say how can you joke at a time like this how you know how yeah. how can you think it's funny well i don't think that the demise of great republics is funny i don't think that the damnation of human souls is funny right i don't think it's funny right um, i i take all of this very seriously but because I take it seriously, I recognize that humor is a potent weapon. Hmm. Okay? And when you respond, the, the besetting sin of conservatives, particularly Christian conservatives, social, uh, social conservatives, is shrillness. That's a besetting sin. The, the secular humanists pass themselves off as free, breezy, liberated uh, men and women of the world, and then we write letters to the editor with a fisted crayon, you know, <laughs> saying, <laughs> saying, secular humanists, I are so mad, and we send our spittle fleck letter in, yeah. and we say, well, I have, to, I, I have to respond that way because this is so serious. And I respond, well, if it's so serious, why are you fighting so ineffectively? Hmm. Well, um, the take you're not your seriousness is your way of not fighting seriously humor and, and Alinsky uh, Alinsky points this out and I would echo it humor is one of the most potent weapons that can be wielded in a conflict like ours and it's modeled for us by the Lord Jesus himself you know the Lord Jesus was a very funny satirist 
and yes. he, his life and ministry was serious. He wound up with him being crucified, right? But he, he knew how to pop balloons. Woe to you, scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites. You're like whitewashed tombs. What a glorious image. <laughs> yeah, I love when he's calling out the, the uh, you know, one group of religious leaders, and then the scribes go, you know, uh, by saying this, you insult us as well. And he turns to them, and instead of going, oh, I'm so sorry, I didn't mean to offend you, he goes, oh, yeah, that reminds me. And woe to you, you uh, scribes as well. Yeah, you know, thanks. Thanks for, I almost forgot, almost forgot you guys. <laughs> right, right. Um, how do we maintain a good sense of humor? And then keep rule number five, which is don't be a jerk. <laughs> yeah. Um, one of the things that you do is you, um, uh, King Loon in, in The Horse and His Boy says, um, basically, never taunt a man except when he's stronger than you, then as you please. Right? <laughs> the, the, way, the way people are jerks with humor is they punch down. Basically, they use humor and mock mockery as a way of bullying. Hmm. Okay. Well, um, we we ought not to bully. We ought not to. We should be defending the defenseless. We should be standing up for the widow and orphan. And if you are Mister Witty Witty Man, go out and talk to Goliath. Right. It ties back in with courage again. Right. Now, maintaining a sense of humor, not being a jerk, um, what about, uh, you, you say, do whatever you can with whatever you have. Could you unpack that a little bit for us? What, how do we identify what we have in order to effectively use it? Well, you, you know what you have by just running a simple inventory. You know, how many people, what... Uh, if, if you are in a particular position, let's say you're the pastor of a church, you hopefully got there by evaluating your gifts and graces. Mm -hmm. Hopefully you didn't just wander into it. <laughs> you know, you yeah. should know, do I have the gift of teaching? Do I have the gift of encouragement? What, what am I good at? And you have to think, what do I think I'm good at? And what do, what do my uh, family and friends think I'm good at? And how many people, how many people are with me? And what objective can we take given these resources? Okay, um, that, that word objective reminded me of something that I wanted to ask you. The first time that you and I spoke, and we've mentioned it a couple of times since then, but there's this idea of, of um, identifying targets in, in a location, uh, whether it's um, you know, uh, geographically, these strategic targets. Can you unpack how you talk about that? Um, how do we identify an appropriate target? How do we pursue that target? What does it look like to win a, a target that is strategic and feasible? And why are those the criteria? Yeah. So in military affairs, it's called the decisive point, right? So in a war yes. or in, in, a, in a war or in a battle, uh, there's going to be one place that is the decisive point. And that place is going to matter if you take it. In, in other words, if you take the decisive point, you win the battle. Or if you take the decisive point, you win the war. Um, if, you take, if you took the decisive point in Chicago, you would have won Chicago. 
Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, and so uh, a decisive point has to have, has, has two characteristics. It has to be feasible. You have to be able to take it. And it has to be um, uh, strategic. It has to matter if you take it. Okay. So if it's feasible and if it's strategic, then that's what you go for. Okay. So if, uh, if I decided today that I wanted to take New York City, because if I took New York City for Jesus, it'd be all over. Right? Sure. Yeah. Well, uh, that's strategic. That, that's true. It is strategic, but it's not feasible given my resources, given where I am, given, you know, I, I can't do that. I could also go out to Beauville, Idaho, which is a ways east of here, which is basically a turn in the road. And we could take Beauville for Jesus in two weeks. All we'd have to do is unload a few moving vans and we'd have Beauville. Uh-huh. It's feasible, but it's not strategic. Okay. Now, uh, that's not to write off New York City, because when you look at New York City, uh, New York City within it has decisive points. Right? Sure. And then certain boroughs would have decisive points. And, you know, so you want to scale down to whatever is feasible for you to take and whatever is decisive within your reach that you could take. Okay. So um, the reason we're here in Moscow, Idaho, is my dad, having written this book, Principles of War, um, determined that in North America, the decisive points or uh, certain key decisive points were small towns with major universities in them. Okay, the small town made it feasible, the major university made it strategic. Hmm. And he then found out that Moscow, Idaho, and Pullman, Washington were two small towns, eight miles apart, with a university in each one. So he moved. Wow. That's why, that's why all this stuff is here. That's also, incidentally, why we're able to punch above our weight class. It, the, the name of the game is disproportionate influence. Okay? So okay. If, you're, if your oncologist found uh, a cancer on your fingernail, right, that's not, that's not going to be the same kind of problem as if he found it in your lymph nodes. Right. Okay? So Christians need to pretend they're a cancer and go for the lymph nodes. <laughs> Uh, great, great imagery. I think a lot of people would, a lot of our, um, ideological opponents would be really happy with that metaphor. Uh, so, so help me out here. God's called me to the city of Chicago. Here I am. I'm on the Northwest side. I live in a neighborhood called Portage Park. That's got about 60,000 people. That's part of a larger social ecosystem called the Northwest side where there's about 200,000 people. There's, uh, there's a city college close by. There's a, uh, a teacher's college nearby. There's a Christian college near nearby, all within a few miles. Um, how do I, as a ministry leader who am training guys with the goal of we want to take the city of Chicago, we want to do it in a decisive and strategic way, how do I identify what those strategic, what those decisive points are, and what does it look like to take one of these points? Is it setting up a, a gospel discussion, a regular dis, uh, you know, uh, gospel discussion in a coffee shop next to the university? Is it you know, winning the principal of the local high school for Jesus? Um, w- what does that look like? And 
Uh, so how do we identify it? What does it look like to win it? Okay, so uh, the, the, the way, what it looks like to identify it is uh, you should, and there are all sorts of ways that this could be scoot off wrong, so don't uh, take it the wrong way. But okay. if you, if you uh, moved to the town you're in and you were the representative of a guy who's going to be running for Congress next year, what what areas does he want to influence? Hmm, okay. Okay. And then I would layer on top of that, uh, suppose you are uh, coming to town as the marketer for a new brand of soap. Okay. Okay. What, what places do you want to a touch and effect? Right. Uh, suppose you wanted to build uh, a plant, um, or establish a Barnes and Noble bookstore. Okay. So you have to answer all those questions and you'd say, okay, what, who are the influencers? Um, there are towns where nobody knows who the mayor is. <laughs> right, right. Right. Because the mayor is not that important. Right. There but there's other, somebody else. Well, but somebody else is important. Yeah. Right. Um, so, you don't want to say that every, in every town the mayor is equally important because in every town politics is not equally important. Okay, okay. does that make sense? Yeah. So you, you, might want to, you might want to start a Bible study uh, for non-believers in the coffee shop across from the art college. Hmm. Okay. If, that's the, if, if you've got a town where the artists and musicians are the driving force. If you, if you want to win that town, then that's, those are the people you've got to deal with, right? In some towns, it's going to be the politicians. In some towns, it's going to be the college administrators or, or the college faculty. In some towns, it will be at the high school level, you know, football coaches, <laughs> right? So, so now we're moving beyond just merely who's in my sphere of influence already, which is what we think about a, a lot of times in terms of personal evangelism. You know, there's the cashier at the supermarket. There's the, the preschool teacher where my kids go to preschool. Um, you know, just the people that I already come into contact with. Now I'm thinking decisively, strategically, who are those people that if I go out of my way to influence them, to reach them with the gospel, they can then have a much broader impact. So this is a this is a massive paradigm shift from the standard personal evangelism model. Is that right? Yeah, correct. Rather than who did I happen to meet today, who should I? It's rather than that. It's who should I make a point of meeting today? Okay. Okay. There's a difference between going fishing and and drifting down the river, wanting the fish to hop in your boat. <laughs> okay. Uh, we're, we're dealing with, uh, Asian carp that are currently swimming up the, the Mississippi towards Chicago right now, yes. uh, which they actually will jump into your boat, but yeah, yeah, it does happen. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, um, rule number 19 says, keep your weapons sharp. Just as we begin to draw things to a close, what are some practical ways that our listeners can keep their weapons sharp? so that they can carry out this mission more effectively? Well, uh, what I intended by that is 
don't be constantly um, doing output. You know, and this is a uh, many pastors and Christian workers fall into this trap. It's it's outflow all the time, and and then they run dry, right? right? They run dry. They're they're just exhausted, tapped out, dried out. Um, you want to make sure you're in the Word. You want to make sure that your your mind is active. You want to be yourself refreshed and pressed and challenged by um, uh, writers and authors and theologians. So basically, uh, realize that you need to be a recipient as well as a giver. Okay. Let me let me put one objective, uh, one objection to you that is something that I've wrestled with personally. And so I'm, I'm saying this as a small B Baptist. And uh, when I look back at the, the, the history of the church, especially when the sacral system sort of took over. Uh, so post Constantine pre Martin Luther, uh, where the, the state and the church were, were married. Um, folks like me didn't fare too well. Right. When, uh, when there was what we now refer to as Christendom. And so in Rule 21, you say, accept and acknowledge our ultimate goal, the reestablishment of a mere Christendom. So can you put my small b Baptist mind at ease about how that doesn't lead to um, Presbyterians and Anglicans taking over everything and uh, Roman Catholics taking over everything and... Um, you know, dictating not only uh, not only establishing Christian principles, but establishing the church in a way that is uh, restrictive of freedoms. Okay, so um, one of my favorite, uh, I think I can help you. W- one of my favorite sayings is compared to what? Okay. Okay. Uh, if someone comes to me and says, Constantine was a disaster, I would say compared to what? Okay. 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 Uh, Constantine. Yeah, you wouldn't have fared too well fifty years after Constantine. You also would have fared exactly the same amount of not well fifty years before Constantine. Sure. Yeah. Right. True enough. In other words, um, (laughs) when Constantine is converted, nothing changes for the Baptists. Right. Right. They they were persecuted before. uh, Right. So afterwards. Uh, afterwards, you're not let's say you're not allowed to build your Baptist chapel before Constantine is converted. You're being thrown to the lions along with the Presbyterians and the Anglicans, and you know, sure, right? So it was not when Constantine ended the pagan sacrifices. That's what he did. He he ended the pagan sacrifices. That was a great moment in history. That was yeah. one of the best things that ever happened. Okay, now. One of the, um, Christopher Dawson, a, uh, a Roman Catholic historian, said that Christianity lives in the light of eter- eternity and can afford to be patient. Okay. Right? Now, I believe that religious liberty is a fruit, uh, liberty of conscience, religious liberty, is a fruit of biblical Christ- Christianity. But it didn't appear 20 years after Constantine was converted. Right. Okay. Right. Uh, it was basically started to come to the fore in the aftermath of the Reformation. So um, the, uh, Constantine is converted in at the end of the antique 
period, the old, the old classical period, and the beginning of the early Middle Ages. Then you have the High Middle Ages, and then you have the Reformation. And then for a couple centuries after that, I think I, I would regard the American settlement in the 18th century to be the high watermark of religious liberty. Sure. Okay. Um, and I think that that is the maturation of a fruit that was growing since the time of Constantine, right? You don't want to say, well, Const what did Constantine did was bad, so let's go back to the pagan sacrifices. Sure, sure. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Yeah, so that, that makes a lot of sense. And that's the same way I explain how the logic that was embedded in the New Testament actually gave rise to the abolitionist movement that, that ended slavery in the Christian world. Now it took, you know, 17 or 18 centuries for that logic to work itself out, but it was the seed that was planted by the apostle Paul, you know, right. by the Lord Jesus himself. It wasn't something new, something novel that had to be imported in. It was the same tree bearing that fruit. Yeah. I would, I would actually say that that was a seed that bore fruit twice. Because uh, Christianity eradicated slavery twice, <laughs> right? When so, was the first time? Uh, well, it was the in the aftermath of Constantine. Okay. So, okay. So when and the feudal system developed, it wasn't like life was a picnic uh, for everybody. You you had serfs and whatnot, but slavery was largely eradicated by the time the New World was discovered, the discovery of America and the mm. age of exploration. When what that what that did was that brought European tribes into contact with Africans and with the Aboriginal peoples in North America, and there was a backsliding. So we okay. we reverted back to um, some of the old forms of slave trading and slave holding, and then the logic of the gospel had to work its way out again a second time. But Thomas Sowell points out, and this is um, he points out wonderfully that uh, that slavery is ubiquitous slavery is everywhere in human history uh, the it, it's just absolutely everywhere and one civilization Western civilization put an end to it finally revolted against it and put an end to it and then Sol points out and Western civilization is now accused of being uniquely culpable for slavery right. well, we're, we're the one civilization that put a, put a stop to it. You know, anyway. Wait. So is this, when you talk about being a conservative. Good reformation. Yeah. Okay. Uh, when you, when you talk about being a conservative, I know the way that you phrase it is something along the lines of conserving the work that the Holy Spirit has done in the world. Through, this point. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, well, Pastor Doug, thank you so much for taking the time to be on the, the Think Podcast again. Um, I originally wanted to have you on to talk about Productivity, which is another book of yours, of your hundred books that I, is that really true, by the way? Have you really written a hundred books? Uh, it's around that, yeah. Unbelievable. All right. So, uh, so we, that's a lot of episodes, um, but uh, maybe sometime we can have you back on to talk about that. Um, so far... Our, our episodes have tackled increasingly controversial subjects. So maybe next time we can get into uh, something, you know, something really. Uh, One of my nice books. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, so, uh, yeah, thank you again for coming on. I, I learn a lot every time. And um, as we're wrapping up, 
folks who have no idea that this is their first interaction with you and your thought, how can they learn more about Pastor Doug Wilson? Where can they get more of your writing, speaking content? Probably the, the best, best way to the do that. Clear, the clearinghouse or the place they can find most uh, connections to everywhere else would be my blog at DougWills.com, D-O-U-G-W-I-L-S.com. All right, great. Thank you again so much. And uh, anything else you want to leave our listeners with? No, this is, they, they've been very well behaved. <laughs> <laughs> so far. Thank you again. And um, uh, really appreciate it. Until next time. Thank you. God bless. You too. Thanks for listening to the Think Podcast with Joel Sedicase. I hope that this was helpful to you. I know it was helpful and challenging to me. And I also hope that this has given you something to put into practice over the next week and months. And we all know we're going to be having a lot of extra time to ourselves, time to think, time to study, time to pray. And uh, that's just uh, part of the wonderful joys and benefits of social distancing due to the coronavirus. Uh, Yes, as I record this, we're all in the middle of that pandemic. And so this is not goodbye. This has just been a little pit stop along the road of your spiritual journey. If you enjoyed this content, please go to thethink.institute. And while you're there, you can get all kinds of teaching resources, blog articles, podcast episodes, And you can also sign up for the Think Update, where you can get access to the latest podcast episodes, as well as special curated content from yours truly to help you share and explain and defend the Christian message. We really believe no follower of Jesus should ever be caught off guard when asked about what he or she believes. Also, there is a really cool way that you can help us get the word out about the podcast and the content we are creating. Simply go to Apple Podcasts and leave us an honest five-star rating and a review. And at the end of this month, uh, March 2020, I'm going to send some lucky winner a book from Lexham Press. And I can now announce which book that's going to be. It's going to be Myth and Meaning in Jordan Peterson, A Christian Perspective, edited by Ron Dart. There are several contributors in here, but this is the kind of book that is very much in line with the not only the content that we produce here on the Think Podcast, but really the audience. You folks, you guys love the content dealing with the intellectual dark web and Jordan Peterson. So, This book is yours if you are the lucky listener who gets his or her uh, name or handle pulled out of the hat at the end of this month. So go ahead and leave us a five-star rating and review. Thank you for listening. That's all I have for you. And until next time, I hope it made you think.